I knew uh, an Orthodox priest who had been a policeman. And then he left the police force and became a priest. And his, he had trouble with that in his parish because people were actually asked him, how could you put away a gun and pick up a cross? For Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. In the Byzantine East, war has always been looked at as a necessary evil, which is not a category that the Catholic Church even allows. If it's evil, it can't be necessary. Bishop John Michael Botin is the head of the eparchy of St. George in Canton, Ohio, the only Romanian Catholic diocese in the U.S. or Canada. We spoke with him at his cathedral in Ohio. Your Grace, thank you for being with us, and uh, let me begin with a subject which is affecting people of all religions today, COVID-19, the coronavirus. What is your diocese doing right now that's different to deal with this pandemic? Well, as pretty much as soon as we're done, Bill, I'm going to be meeting with my vicar general and um, uh, vice chancellor. We're planning on putting something out today to give advice and direction as far as what we're going to do liturgically. Because we're in nine states and two Canadian provinces, that's going to differ from place to place. Uh, I already got a phone call, for instance, from uh, our monastery that's in the state of Washington. There's a, we have a monastery of nuns in the state of Washington. And the Archbishop of Seattle has uh, canceled masses for the weekend. They wanted to know what to do. And I said, we're going to do what is happening locally. So that's among the kind of things that we're going to be doing. We do have communion of both species by intinction normally. So I'm going to offer some advice as far as how to do that, perhaps in a more sanitary fashion. We don't have, sad to say, we don't have uh, large groups uh, at uh, liturgy. So I don't think that's going to pose an issue. But I'm still going to say that pastors should suggest people sit far from each other, empty the holy water fonts, that kind of thing. Um, This is really an amazing time in all of my years uh, uh, of life. Uh, I've never seen anything like this happen anywhere, especially in churches. What about you, uh, Your Grace? No, not at all. But I'm thinking that part of the reason that we're responding the way we are is because we can. You know, perhaps certainly in 1918 for the Spanish flu, there was no possibility of this kind of a response. And now we can because the information is readily available. And so um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that this, this is a, a kind of a test of a new approach for world health. And it seems to me that the reasonable reaction is overreaction at this point. I mean, the pr- panic is one thing, but prudence is something else. And I think we need to err on the side of prudence. Uh, I would agree with that, uh, Your Grace, and it's interesting. I'm. Uh, I wanted to also mention that for those people who've never heard the word, intinction means dipping the uh, host into the wine, and that's uh, apparently the way you your standard approach is. That's right. Uh, we use leaven. We use leavened bread, so uh, it's a matter of. Uh, I'll be suggesting that the priests cut large enough pieces, for instance, that they can do that more hygienically. Are you doing anything about the holy water? Some uh, churches uh, around the world are eliminating holy water. Not all of our churches have holy water fonts, uh, but since you mentioned it, it occurs to me that I should mention that I think probably we do need to, those churches that have holy water fonts, we need to empty them. 
Okay, let us uh, now, uh, Your Grace, get into the uh, meat of what we wanted to talk to you about. You made a huge splash in the recent NCR, National Catholic Reporter, in an article by Joshua McElwee. It was titled, Nothing, meaning nothing in quotes, Bishop Gets Frank. Uh, what, what did you mean when you called yourself a nothing bishop? Well, that's actually... Uh, Josh slightly misquoted me. I think he gets it right later in the article. But, you know, a term I've used for myself for many years was, you know, I'm a nobody bishop from a nothing diocese, meaning we're very, very small. What I have to say doesn't matter very much, you know. So uh, it's 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 self-deprecating. I don't I don't mean it in any, uh, uh, you know, negative sense. But it's just to just underline the fact that we're small, poor, insignificant and spread out all over two countries. <laughs> so. Well, um, I love to hear all of those things. And, and of course, we all took it in the right way, which is with a little bit of uh, levity along with it. But mm-hmm. there's some truth always to uh, levity. Let's talk about, uh, because suddenly um, there's some attention uh, to your diocese. You are the only Romanian right Catholic diocese in the United States and Canada. You are the Bishop of the Eparchy of St. George's in Canton, Ohio, and that's where we're speaking to you from. Uh, explain to me, what is all this? Well, eparchy is uh, a word that simply means diocese. Um, for people who aren't you know, all that familiar with how the Catholic Church is organized, um, there are, the Catholic Church is actually a uh, communion of churches, with one great big one and 22 smaller ones. Um, Most of the, what are called the Eastern Catholic churches were uh, at one point or another separated from Rome, uh, part of Orthodox churches, and at different moments throughout their history, uh, a segment of those churches came back into communion with Rome. In the case of the Romanian Greek Catholic or Byzantine Catholic Church, uh, that began in 19, rather in 1698, and became official in 1700. Um, we are—I'm the only Romanian Catholic bishop outside of Romania, and so that's why we have a, a small community in North America, uh, for which I'm the bishop. And our diocese was only established as a an exarchate, which means sort of like a pre-diocese or a temporary structure in 1982. And Pope Saint John Paul II made it a full-fledged diocese or eparchy, rather in 1987. And the Eastern Catholic Churches, of which we are one, we have our own set of laws promulgated by Pope John Paul uh, called the Code of Canons of the Eastern Catholic Churches, or of the Eastern Churches, which is different but very similar to the Code of Canon Law that the Roman Catholic Church follows. What are the differences? What are the uh, the main differences? Are, Are they any significant enough to talk about? Well, one of the big differences is we have married priesthood. Uh, we are part of the com- conditions for uh, or the agreements that brought about these unions was that we were to keep all of our traditions and our traditional way of life, and that includes uh, married priests. And we use the same liturgy, for instance, in the Romanian Church as the Romanian Orthodox Church does, with some minor changes. For instance, we, we it's the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom is the typical Sunday liturgy, and uh, it's the same. Eucharistic liturgy that everybody's used to, starting with a liturgy of the Word and then a liturgy of the Eucharist, um, epistle and gospel reading, and so forth. 
um, it would be recognizable as a Mass, and the only difference between uh, our liturgy and the Romanian Orthodox liturgy is, of course, that we commemorate the Pope in our own hierarchy. Uh, but the rest is pretty much the same. Interesting. Well, obviously, we have to drill in a little and uh, uh, and peel back this issue of married priesthood. But first, let us let us talk about um, uh, how you wound up existing in Canton, Ohio, and how many uh, how many followers uh, your eparchy has in these what twelve states and in Canada. Well, let's. Why we are in Canton, I think part part of me wants to say that God was looking out for me uh, because this Canton <laughs> is my hometown. Oh, great. And, yes, and uh, we were very, very poor. So until recently, there was no house for the bishop, and I live at home with my mom. So that that has been a, a real, real blessing for us and for me. Uh, but the reason is my predecessor. I'm the second bishop. My predecessor chose Canton. For a couple of reasons, but I think one of the principal ones was that it is centrally located with respect to our established parishes, which are mostly in the uh, was in the industrial heartland. So uh, I could, except for our newer missions in California and in Massachusetts and the ones in Canada, I could drive to any one of our parishes in about eight hours. So that was one one good reason. Um, the other reason was that uh, the community in Canton was. Uh, I think probably probably um, a little. It, it was well organized, and it had a, a new building, a new campus here, uh, or newer campus, and uh, probably appealed to my predecessor as the place for his uh, new eparchy. Uh, do you have your own monasteries, uh, and uh, how many followers? Uh, uh, what what is the size of of your diocese in population? Well, we my predecessors used the the number five thousand. And we've not done a census, although I'm hoping to do one soon, uh, largely because after the revolution in 1989 in Romania, when Romanians started to come from escaping from the, or leaving after the Ceausescu's regime over there, the last thing I thought they would want to do would be fill out forms with a lot of personal information. So I just never, never went after that kind of information, but I need to now. We don't, we don't have... 5,000 people that show up at the liturgy on Sunday morning, I'm sure, uh, uh, among our 22 parishes and missions. But um, there are a lot of other Romanian Catholics who are scattered around North America that we simply are not able to serve, but that to one degree or another we try to be in touch with, that live in places where we don't have a parish or a mission. Uh, Is your liturgy done in English or is it done in Romanian? It does. It depends on on the parish. Uh, in the new missions that are immigrant communities, there the liturgy is in Romanian. At the cathedral, which is my home parish, it's been around since my grandparents' generation founded it. Uh, the liturgy is almost entirely in English, with a little bit of Romanian, just to to maintain the flavor. Uh, since you you have a married priesthood, uh, there's been a, as you well know, a, a, a big discussion in the Catholic Church about saying that if there were married priests in the main body of the Catholic Church, there would be one many, many more priests to deal with the shortage of priests in the world. And second, the issue of, um, of, uh, of, of the sexual problems that the Church uh, and other religions have had would go away because there are, or, or would be greatly reduced because there are married priests. Would you, uh, from being on the inside, since you do have married priests, 
uh, comment on that? Well, uh, uh, as far as whether the Latin Church or the Roman Catholic Church would have more priests, that's, that's probably true because just considering the number of priests who left to get married uh, in the years following the Second Vatican Council, if they were all still with us, um, we wouldn't have the clergy shortage that we have now. But as far as having a, uh, an impact on the abuse crisis, th you know, that would be very hard to say because most other religions have married clergy. And they also have uh, similar problems um, among their married clergy. So um, I don't know that celibacy has, in fact, I don't think celibacy has been a, a really uh, major factor contributing to the abuse crisis. Well, in your uh, diocese with married priests, are there any instances of, uh, of abuse? Thank God up to now we haven't had any, no. But like I said, we're pretty new. We're pretty new, but there have been no allegations. How are you doing? Is there any sense of your uh, uh, of your diocese, of your right growing? It's a very unusual one, a very interesting one. If a person's Catholic and would like a little slightly different kind of Roman Catholicism, you seem to offer that. Um, so is there a chance that you could be getting bigger? Well, I think, it, again, from, from parish to parish, it, it depends. Um, of course, the cathedral parish, this parish here in Canton, uh, is not as big as it was when I was a child, as far as numbers. But we're holding our own for exactly that reason, uh, that we, for people who are, who are Catholic but who uh, find our liturgy and spirituality and our traditions appealing, uh, we've become a home for them. So we're becoming little, little by little more and more Americanized. And I think that's the future for many of the Eastern Catholic churches in the United States. Some of the Eastern Catholic churches haven't been here as long uh, as our church. Some have been here longer. Ukrainians are much more numerous, for instance. They're also a Byzantine Catholic church, and uh, they have uh, many more people and, and uh, many more parishes. Some parishes are growing and some missions are growing. Some are shrinking. And we have three communities that effectively are in the process of being closed now um, that are, again, part of the industrial heartland and uh, people have simply moved away, and we, we can't fight the demographics. Are there any, um, any other unique aspects of your church? Uh, I've heard many things about, particularly about the nonviolent witness to war uh, and uh, issues of, uh, of, uh, of peace and war that you uh, folks have stood for. Well, that's, that's, um, that's something that I'm to blame for, um, although my spiritual father is also a married Malkite priest. He was a spiritual director at the seminary that I attended in Boston, uh, St. Gregory's, which is a seminary by the, uh, run by the Melkite eparchy of Newton. Melkites were the Byzantines of the Middle East. He, however, is not Middle Eastern. He's uh, Irish. His name is uh, Father Emmanuel McCarthy. And Early on in my uh, theology years, I encountered uh, a presentation about gospel nonviolence that made perfect sense to me and fit like a glove with the Eastern Catholic, Eastern spirituality that I, I was coming to know better and to appreciate. So it's become a kind of particular focus of mine, uh, but also I think it's, it's something that's a little more perhaps at home in Eastern churches for, for at least one reason, you know, we don't have, within the tradition, 
something like the uh, uh, just war theory. That's part of the tradition of the Western Church. Now, we're a part of that communion now, so we can't say that, uh, that that's completely foreign to us. But uh, in the Byzantine East, war has always been looked at as a necessary evil, which is not a category that the Catholic Church even allows. If it's evil, it can't be necessary, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, so um, and because uh, the history of the Byzantine Church is very much tied up with the Byzantine Empire, of course, and the Roman Empire in the East, in Constantinople, it was a, uh, a political power, and it had vast armies and navies, and so the church was expected to act um, in concert with the uh, empire. The emperor was considered, in a certain way, a, a, a representative of Christ, uh, which is how eventually the Byzantine emperor and the Roman pontiff kind of came to be at odds because they were using some of the same titles. Uh, and that led to some, you know, um, uh, disagreements, uh, sort of in the background of all the agreements, the disagreements that were in the foreground that led to the Great Schism. But there's a doctrine in uh, Orthodox theology called symphony, and that is that the church and state, the church and, and empire actually, are supposed to act for the common good together. And that, that was more the, uh, the, uh, the theological rationale for Christian participation in war. Uh, but interestingly, um, there was a time when one of the emperors, and I'm not a great historian, so I don't remember either the Byzantine emperor or the patriarch of Constantinople at the time, uh, one of the emperors suggested to the church that fallen soldiers should be canonized and regarded as saints. And the reply was, well, when, they, when a soldier comes back from war, we excommunicate them for a period of time so that they can do penance for the violence they've done. I don't think that's consistent with, with canonizing anybody. So, so that, you know, that, that was sort of how that issue kind of got resolved uh, in the history of, of Byzantine churches. I knew uh, an Orthodox priest who had been a policeman. And then he left the police force and became a priest. And his, he had trouble with that in his parish. Because people were actually asked him, how could you put away a gun and pick up a cross? So there's a sort of sense of that uh, in Byzantine spirituality that it's, it's more of a flavor than, or a sense than it is uh, uh, you know, an explicit doctrine. Um, but that somehow violence is inconsistent with, with what is expected of a Christian. And so, but we're all sinners. Christ came to forgive sin, that's what he does best. And so we, uh, we have to live life as, as life comes to us, but uh, always striving for, and I think this is a characteristic of Byzantine spirituality as well, um, not settling for second best, but expecting the whole transformation of the whole person. And, uh, you know, a quest for sanctity belongs to everybody in the church. You articulate beautifully uh, your position of uh, nonviolent witness. How does it play out in reality, are you able, or your uh, the people of your flock able to do anything specific in that area? I don't think I haven't really actively tried to engage parishioners in this particularly. I did. There's kind of a, a story to it, and it's not a completely happy story, 
But one of the things I did try to do was with a, a property that our church still has in a neighboring community here to set up a Catholic worker house. Um, unfortunately, everybody involved with my diocese eventually left that uh, effort uh, of forming a Catholic worker community for all kinds of reasons. Um, so there's, there, there are people there who are still carrying out the works of mercy, but they're no longer affiliated with our diocese. Um, but be that as it may, that was, that was probably the one, the one thing that uh, I tried the most to do in terms of a peace witness um, uh, within the diocese. One of the small things that I'm doing now is simply having a, a small book discussion group to talk about some of these issues. Well, you're one of those uh, uh, dioceses that helps make uh, this global church even more global locally because of the unusual nature of your uh, diocese. Um, recently, uh, you just came from Rome uh, and a visit with, uh, uh, with the Pope, Pope Francis. Um, did you visit with, I assume you visit with, visited with him personally? Did you have a chance to talk? What were your feelings? What were the issues that you talked about that you can tell us about? Well, uh, like all the other regions at their Ad Limina visits, we had a considerable time with Pope Francis. It was nearly three hours that he spent with us, just us and Pope Francis and his translator. And the atmosphere was very informal, very cordial, very open. Everyone spoke openly. And frankly, when you're dealing with uh, Eastern Catholics, that's 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 what you're going to get because we have a strong tradition of lay involvement in church governance, for instance. So um, the clergy are used to speaking their minds as they're used to their people speaking their minds and what's going on. And so we, we were able to speak quite openly. And I was uh, one of the things that I wanted to say personally and did was to thank Pope Francis for lifting a ban on married clergy, married priests, that had existed since 1929 in the U.S. and Canada and Australia, uh, which he did. And so um, he was perfectly at hap happy with that. He talked about maximizing the freedom of Catholics to, to follow sort of their spiritual interests. So if somebody's interested in, in uh, living, be, being a member of, a, of an Eastern Catholic parish, uh, they should be welcome. If one of our people is interested or expresses an interest in belonging to a Roman Catholic parish, he, he you know, talked, talked about maximizing everyone's uh, freedom to, to pursue their spiritual path within the Catholic Church. And I thought that was, um, that was very, very welcome. I'm very happy to hear that. We've come a long way since uh, the time when uh, the uh, Latin rite was officially considered the preeminent rite in uh, in the Catholic Church, um, as with the uh, Eastern with the decree on Eastern Catholic churches at the Second Vatican Council, um, uh, Orientalium Ecclesiarum. Uh, we're all considered equal now. Some of us are smaller, some of us are larger, but as churches, we are all equal. And the Eastern Catholic churches have a degree of self governance that uh, doesn't exist in the Latin church, and we try to, uh, to make the best of that that we can. So we're, uh, to, to go into something else that we kind of talked about with Pope Francis, uh, communion with Peter is, a, is kind of a two-way street. 
if you will. And I, I mentioned in particular that uh, we are a witness to the synodality that Pope Francis is trying to uh, introduce into the uh, governance structure of the Catholic Church because that's how our churches are governed, is uh, synodally. And uh, you I think explain we have that term for those who don't know it. Well, the Eastern Catholic Churches, according to canon law in the Catholic Church, are called churches sui juris. That means of their of their own law or of their own right, uh, or autonomous is the word that's often used to translate that. Now, it's not complete autonomy, of course, because we're all under the, the universal pontiff in a certain way. But we are free to govern ourselves. In fact, the the Second Vatican Council's decree on Eastern Churches says we have a right and duty to govern ourselves, and so we do that. Our my church, the Romanian Catholic Church, for instance is headed by, um, uh, he's, a, he's called a major archbishop. So he's, he's in Romania, and he is the, the spiritual father of, of our church. And, but he does not govern uh, autocratically or autonomously. His governance of the church is always in communion with all of us bishops. Uh, we have minutes, uh, meetings, rather, in my church of what's called our synod, which is all of the bishops of our church, and again, I'm the only one outside of Romania, uh, twice a year to go over issues that are of importance to us and uh, to approve actions that the archbishop wants to take in terms of governance. So it's always, um, governance is always in a kind of dialogue, uh, and very, very rarely can the major archbishop or any patriarch in an Eastern Catholic Church act on his own authority without the synod. So it's that it's that dialogic structure. It's that uh, uh, tension, positive tension between primacy on the one hand and synodality on the other that produces the kind of life that the Eastern Catholic Churches live. Do you think uh, because Pope Francis is so unusual and so special that the Latin church is slowly transforming into the kind of church that the uh, Eastern Church is as far as organizational structure and operation. I, I hope so, but I think it's going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough, it's going to have a rough time of it because, uh, you know, after so many centuries of, of uh, a kind of papal primacy that was, uh, that was uh, universal and absolute and uh, it, it's going to be difficult to get, even Catholic bishops, I think, used to uh, structure of more synodal governance. And that works its way out even locally because uh, if, if this is supposed to happen in the universal church, that means that bishops have to govern more synodally within their own dioceses. And that's a, that could be a big adjustment for some bishops who are used to calling the shots on, the, on their own. And pastors and parishes, likewise, the same story. It's always got to be in tension and dialogue, positive dialogue with, uh, with, with a, a group of people that's being governed and contributing to their own governance. I think that's part of the, part of the, the mystery of baptism that we all share, and that's, that's where it all comes from. These ad lumina visits that, uh, that you make, uh, uh, occasional visit to Rome uh, to visit with the Pope, you're one of the few bishops that's actually, I guess, seen three different popes or maybe three or four, could it be? Uh, would you? No, no, I didn't see Pope John. Okay, uh, but uh, but at <laughs> any rate, you've, you've you've been to a number of them and different popes. How different is Pope Francis compared to previous the previous popes you've met? All three of them are different. The, the Adlimina visit, I've been to four, and all four of them were very very different. Pope John Paul, Pope Saint John Paul, uh, my first Adlimina visit. 
was extremely personal and welcoming. We we had a mass together with him in the morning. He had us over to his apartment for lunch. We each had maybe five or ten minutes one-on-one with him, plus a, plus a group audience. And it was a very, very positive experience. And with Pope Benedict, uh, the second time I saw him, he was already ill and at Castel Gandolfo, so it was not, it couldn't be the same kind of experience. But then with Pope Benedict, uh, it was a little more formal, uh, less a little less personal. There was not the mass together. There was not the you know the lunch together or anything like that. Uh, but it was a formal kind of gathering, and that you know fit with his personality. But it was also a very positive experience. This time, it was. Sort of both and. It wasn't, there was no one-on-one, but there was a very open conversation between us as a group and the Pope. And uh, that was extraordinary. I think we all, in our group, went away a little bit amazed. And I think that's probably been the general experience of, of uh, at least the U.S. hierarchy uh, in, in going to Rome and experiencing these visits. Uh, and, be, and it was reflected also, not just in the, in the audience with the Pope, our meetings with the uh, dicasteries, the uh, departments of the Roman Curia, the government, you know, the, the central government of the church, if you will, uh, were characterized by the same kind of openness and dialogue. Uh, we didn't go in there and hear lessons read to us. They were asking us what was on our minds. All the cardinal prefects and everybody who was in charge of these, of these uh, uh, departments um, expressed the same kind of openness, and we had open conversations with them as well. So it's a change of... Rome felt different. Rome felt different. That's all I can say. Um, that that's also very good news. In the not such good news department, uh, the world itself seems to be more troubled than ever before. Uh, heavy layers of nationalism, uh, just instability worldwide. Um, what can people of faith do about that issue? Well, the first thing we have to do is pray, um, because I think what's going on in the world now, and it's not the first time that this kind of dynamic has entered into uh, human history, uh, it's, I think, proof positive that, that evil exists and is powerful. And uh, you don't have to, you, you know, for those who are not believers and don't believe in personal evil, that's fine. It still exists. And so those of us who are people of faith, we need to pray first. We need to pray for uh, the first word out of, out, of, uh, out of our liturgy, you know, in peace let us pray to the Lord, Lord, for the peace of the whole world. That's the first, that's the first petition after the first amen of the, of the Byzantine divine liturgy. And uh, so that, that's, that needs to be a preoccupation of all of us. But beyond that, too, um, I, I, I think the, the, the best we can do to stay away from those influences that lead to division um, and recognize that there's, there's a lot that, that was very, very promising, for instance, in the, in the promise of the, of the Internet and global democracy exercised through the Internet, uh, but it has become a platform for all kinds of craziness. And I think so. I think uh, Christians need to be, and people of faith need to be very careful not only what they write, but what they read and what they what they uh, what they take in from their exposure to to the internet, because it gives it gives as well as good. It gives evil uh, a megaphone uh, to speak into people's hearts, and you know the uh, 
the mind is the first gateway to the heart. And so you have to be careful what it is. And this is, again, a, a big part of our traditions, traditional spirituality, to keep conscious of what it is that you're hearing and reading and discussing and being able then to recognize that none of it, none of it takes the place of faith. None of it takes the place of the gospel. And that Jesus is Lord and nobody else. So no political idea, no economic theory, no anything can take the place of the gospel in our lives. And there is nothing that the world can offer that can take the place of holiness. Now, the world doesn't value holiness, of course, uh, but as people of faith, we're supposed to. We're supposed to. The, the word that we use in Byzantine tradition is, is uh, divinization or theosis. We're supposed to be living our lives so that God can transform us into what God is. Uh, we say that we can become by grace what God is by nature, and that's exactly the, the goal of the Christian life in Byzantine spirituality. Bishop John Michael Botine, head of the Eparchy of St. George's in Canton, Ohio, the only Romanian right Catholic diocese in the U.S. and Canada. Thank you so much for your insight. We're very grateful to have talked to you. Well, thank you for your interest, and God bless you, and keep you strong in your work. Bishop John Michael Botine, an American bishop in a diocese of married priests. Beliefs is produced in association with the Bernard Schwartz Center at Fordham's Graduate School of Education in New York. Special technical assistance in Ohio from Larry Baker. Our producer is Jonathan Woodward. I'm Bill Baker. There will be more, so stay tuned. <laughs>